Well, if you've got a copy of God's Word with me, will you go ahead and open to the book of Acts? We've been going through Acts for the last several weeks, and uh, we're going to make our way all the way to the end of this book when it's all said and done. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 5 this morning. We're going to look at verses 12 through 21. You'll also notice verse 21 is kind of split in half, and so we'll look at the first half of verse 21 together this morning. We've been looking at this uh, little series in Acts called Forward, and we're seeing the forward march of God's church, and uh, you'll see the title of our today's message about this life this morning, which we'll talk about this life to which we're all called here in just a moment. Uh, I'm a big basketball fan. I grew up watching a lot of basketball college and then started to really love the NBA, and I don't follow it near as, as closely as I used to, but some of you guys may notice this guy. Go ahead and put that picture up there. That's Larry Bird. You know who that is? Played for the Boston Celtics back in the 80s and I think a little bit of the 90s as well. Maybe even part of the 70s. I'm not, I wasn't around, so I don't know. I know I'm young, whatever. Some of you guys remind me of that a lot. Anyway, so this is Larry Bird. By the way, coincidentally, he looks exactly like his name. Go ahead. I mean, right? Am I the only one? It's weird, right? He looks just like a bird. Anyway, you can take that one down. Go back to the other one. Uh, so... Larry Bird was, is one of, the, uh, one of the staples of the Boston Celtics franchise, and he, is a, he was a really great player. He's a Hall of Famer. Uh, he was their silver bullet while he was there. When the game was on the line, everyone knew who was getting the ball. It was Larry Bird because that dude was stone cold with the ball. Uh, he was also an elite trash talker, like elite trash talker. If you go Google Larry Bird trash talk, first of all, trash talk will be one of the first results you'll find when you Google his name because he was an elite trash talker. Uh, there's a story that he, went, he was uh, in the three-point contest which, by the way, happened over the weekend. But uh, he was in the three-point contest, and he walked in the locker room, and he kind of eyed up all the other guys that were going to be competing. And he kind of laughed at them and, like, scoffed at them and, like, rolled his eyes and stuff and was, like, shaking his head. And then he says to all of them, so which one of you guys is going to get second? I mean, really next-level stuff. My dad talked to me like that. It was really kind of him. Um, there's a lot of stories. One of them is that uh, they were playing the Seattle Supersonics in 1986. The clock was winding down, and uh, the game was tied. During a timeout, the Celtics coach was Casey Jones, and he was drawing up a play. And uh, Larry Bird interrupted his coach, and he said to his coach, Coach, why don't you just give me the ball and tell everyone to clear out? <laughs> Great role model for your children those of you that play sports. Uh, so they break the huddle. By the way, the coach is like, okay, fine, Larry, go do your thing. Break the huddle, walks onto the floor, and uh, Larry Bird walks up to his defender, a guy named Xavier McDaniel, who also tells this story, by the way. And he told him exactly what he was going to do. He said, Xavier, I'm going to get the ball, and then I'm going to do this move, and then I'm going to end up in that spot, and then I'm going to take the shot, and I'm going to hit a, a last-second buzzer-beater game winner. And Xavier McDaniel's response was, I know, and I'll be ready. And Larry Bird said, there's nothing you can do to stop it. Okay, so inbound the ball, Larry Bird gets to that spot, he does that move, they bring a double team even, and there's footage of this, and he just drains this shot right in Xavier McDaniel's, McDaniel's face. Um, he does exactly what he said he was going to do, in other words. McDaniel was shaking his head, starting to walk away, and Larry Bird, he'll tell you that there's an interview. Xavier McDaniel says that Larry Bird apologized to him, and he's like, what, the, what are you talking about? And he said, I didn't mean to leave two seconds left on the clock. I mean, just elite level of trash talk. Sometimes, and that's true, right? A guy can be so dominant in sports that even though the defense knows exactly what's coming, he's so good that they still can't stop it. In our passage this morning, there is no secrecy about the apostles' playbook. 
They, they've made no qualms about what they're doing. They know exactly, all the, the religious leaders, they know exactly what to expect. They've made it clear to the authorities opposing them that they'll be at the temple, they'll be teaching boldly, even if it means opposing men. And the kicker is that even though the opponents of God knew the playbook, there was nothing they could do to stop the forward momentum of God's church. Not because of the wisdom, not because of the sneakiness of the apostles, but because the power and plan of God cannot be thwarted even by man's greatest efforts. Still true today, am I right? That's still true today. The church marches forward, the gospel marches forward, and that is the life to which we are called. This life is one of unrelenting opposition, but the comfort is that it is also one of unconquerable confidence because of our unstoppable God. This is really interwoven throughout the pages of this book. So let's look at Acts 5, and we're going to look at this in verses 12 through 21 this morning. It says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Really quickly, to summarize some events, they have healed a man that was born without the ability to use his legs at a gate. They're pretty close to where they're doing this teaching. They're then arrested because they're sort of talking about the resurrection, and the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and so they had an issue with that, and so they arrested these guys. Uh, they were really jealous, though, as you re- we read just a moment ago. They were jealous because they were losing followers while, while this Jesus movement was gaining followers. They start to bring a trial to them, but it's just a sham because they have no grounds to arrest them on even. But so, and because they can't really accuse them of any crime, they instead result, resort to threatening them. They said, you better knock it off. If you don't, there's going to be consequences. Don't disobey the governorship of the Sanhedrin, that ruling body. Peter and John are the ones that are arrested, the ones that did the initial miracle, and they respond with boldness instead of cowering and saying, okay, yes, sir. They respond with boldness and say, tough guys, we got to obey God, not man. They're then released. They go back to God's people, the church, and they respond in praise and prayer. Then they plead to God and say, we need boldness because of the mission that's going ahead. They're going to face opposition. We need boldness. We need oneness. Those are the things that we've seen in the last couple of weeks. And now they go back to work in our passage this morning. And I'm just going to remind you, they go back to this work of teaching and even healing, but they do it in the face of great Opposition, really important to our passage this morning, is understanding the great opposition that the apostles were facing. But I'll say this, that as the tension of the narrative rises, this is very important, as the tension of the narrative rises, God's power and the life that he offers rises with it. Every time opposition rises, we see the the ascension of God's power to combat that opposition. So this morning, I'm going to give you two ways that we really see God's power, not just at work in the passage, but also at work in our own lives. And that is, number one, the power to meet needs. 
that God has the power to meet needs. And we see certain needs that are met in our passage this morning, and we're going to see some ties in that we can make to our own lives. But certainly, God is meeting the physical needs and the spiritual needs of those in our passage this morning. The place where this is all happening is the Temple Mount. It's surrounded by covered walkways called porticos. Could you put that image up there, please? This is what a portico is. It's like a, a, a sort of a roof that's, that's got columns underneath it, and people would gather underneath these porticos. Back there in the, back there in the background, this is just a, an artist's depiction, but back there in the background is sort of the temple complex proper, but this is the surrounding temple complex, and they would have these porticos, and you can see they line all the way around. You can even see the columns out there in the deep background. But this was a popular place for rabbis to teach their students. And anybody that was an interested passerby, they may hear somebody teaching and they may stop and listen to them. And so these porticos were places where rabbis were teaching. But here's the thing. None of those rabbis were performing miracles or teaching what the apostles were teaching. Look at verse 12. It says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now, all together means that all the apostles were gathered together, and they're doing these signs and wonders, and they're teaching about the gospel of Christ Jesus. I mentioned this a moment ago when we were doing baptism, and that the word signs is very important. These aren't just symbols, and they're not just miracles, by the way. They're signs, and signs, as you know, just in our, in our everyday life, Signs exist for a reason because signs point to things. I had to take a signs quiz whenever I got my driver's permit, and they didn't tell me what each sign meant. I had to know the signs. That's pretty important, right? Some of you guys, I feel like, don't know the signs anymore, and that's just a madhouse out there trying to drive on these mean streets of Meridian. Put that signs uh, slide up there for me. You can look at these signs, and there's no words. You don't see one word up there, but I bet you know what every one of those signs means. No words. But those signs stand for things. You may see the one on the left and think, no, I want coffee. Thanks a lot. I was getting tired, and now that makes a lot of sense. I want that. You may see those golden arches. Isn't that crazy? All you see is the letter M, and you're like, that that just tastes like greasy fried food. You know what I'm saying? But that's what I'm saying. You see the signs, the the restroom. And you know that the man and woman means restroom, or at least it used to. Now today, who knows? Signs exist for a reason. They point us to things. And you're smart enough to know immediately why a sign exists. The same is true in our passage, that signs and wonders exist for a reason. It's not just to say, wow, what a miracle. You don't just look at a sign and say, oh, there's a nice sign. Look at the LEDs. It's really lit up. You think of the thing that it's pointing to. And I will say the same thing for the signs in our passage, is that these are proofs. They exist to point us to something. Jesus made no secret about this. He performed miracles. Matthew 9, 6, Jesus said this, but that you may know, know what? That the Son of Man has authority, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Notice what was more important to Jesus was that you understand why he's doing the sign, not just that you see and marvel at the sign itself. Jesus even said that his apostles would do the same thing. John 14 verse 12 says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. He even said greater works than these will you do because I'm going to the Father. Now, Jesus isn't saying you're going to do something more amazing than the death, burial, and resurrection of himself. He's saying that he's only going to be able to minister in Galilee and Jerusalem. He says, you're going to go and reach places that I've never even been before. Greater in scope and in scale, he's saying. Guys, the purpose there is that the purpose of the miracles is never only just to heal. Miracles identify God's messengers, and miracles affirm their message. They, they, they identify God's messengers, and they affirm their message. Miracles are not the message itself. So what they were doing was important, but why they were doing it was very, very much more important. 
And also what they were doing is just as important as where they were doing it, which is really important to the context of our passage. Where were they doing this? They were doing this in Solomon's portico. Why was that a problem? Because the place that they were arrested a place is a place where they would continue to go to Jewish places, Jewish place of worship, okay? They would continue to go to Jewish places of worship, and they did things that were increasingly perceived as hostile to Jewish traditions. I mean, you can see the sort of the crescendo and climax that's happening here is you have this, these two worldviews that are going to clash together because they are moving in one way, but this is a traditionally a very different place to be. And because of that, we know that they're going to face opposition. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says, none of the rest dared to join them. It's because it was high stakes. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. None of the rest, it says, were dared to join them. Not sure if this is talking about the rest of the Jesus followers or the rest of the Jewish bystanders that did not identify with the Jesus movement. It's one of those two groups. But either way, uh, the message is mainly the same. Essentially, it's saying none of them dared to go. Uh, I, I personally think of this as probably the rest of the Jewish bystanders that didn't identify with the Jesus movement. You know, I grew up playing truth or dare, like when I was a kid, uh, which like, I, I'm, I think that's why I struggle with anxiety still today. <laughs> but truth or dare would like give me panic attacks as a kid. I hope they don't dare me to kiss this girl. Uh, it's like, I'm like seven years old. What am I even thinking about that for? Anyway, why did I even say that? It's not in my notes. I never know, you know? So, uh, but dare, the reason you dare someone and the reason you feel that sweating sensation whenever you get a dare in truth or dare, and uh, well, I always said truth, by the way, is because a dare is an act that requires shameless boldness. That's what a dare is. And so when it says none of them dared to join them, it means most of these guys did not have the boldness to join them, the shameless boldness. You see, people outside the church even, they realize that this is not a community to be entered into lightly. But they see and they, they understand that they're meeting other people's needs. That's why it says they looked on them with favor, even if they were like, eh, maybe not for me, because it clearly costs something to align with you guys. But the important thing to see here is that the Spirit of God increasingly empowers, equips, and emboldens His people. It rises to the occasion. There are greater stakes with greater threats. God gives them greater boldness in the midst of those threats. There's a greater demand for larger crowds, and yet there are a greater number of messengers here. It goes, notice, by the way, in chapter 3, it was just Peter and John. Now you have all of the apostles there with them. Greater need, greater means. Greater needs for healing, and God performs greater miracles. I mean, it even says, I just hope Peter's shadow touches me. That sounds like greater miracles to me. Guys, the principle is this, and I think that this is, is helpful to us, is that as the people's needs increased, so did God supply the means to accomplish the mission to meet those needs. A need arises, and God just rises right there alongside of it. When I was called into the ministry, and uh, I started to, to learn, you know, in seminary and things, and, and Brooke and I had, had recently gotten married, and one of the phrases that we really latched onto uh, was one that you'll see on the screen behind me, and that is, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. Man, that was like, wasn't that just a balm to our souls? Um, because, I don't know if you noticed, but like, we're just kind of regular people. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not like a monk that would grow up in a monastery. Uh, you know, I, 
I, I tell people this all the time, that I didn't know how to read my Bible for real until I was in seminary. And my goal, the reason I teach the way that I do teach the Bible is that I don't want anybody to be like me. I want you all to know how to read God's Word, not because you go to school to learn it, but because you go to church and you learn it. And so, uh, and even are equipped to go and learn on your own, even because the Spirit of God dwells within you. And so, you know, close to my heart is the phrase that you see behind me, is that God calls us to big things. Many in here are called to big things, big conversations, big relationships, big weighty matters. And for me, it was comforting to know that God does not equip, or God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. And I'll add to that, and you'll see this on the screen behind me too, that if God calls this church, this fellowship, into a season of faith, we can rest assured that he will provide there. Why does God call us into situations if not for us to rely heavily on him? You know, right now we're in this season of faith as a church family because, uh, you know, we've got some things on the horizon, to be honest with you, that are pretty overwhelming. We have a room that's very full, and we don't have the money to quickly see about that need. And we don't want to put a lid on the capacity, but we literally have a lid on the capacity to fill this room right now. And so something's going to have to change. You know, God may be calling us to step out of our comfort zone and do things a little bit differently, and I'm not really sure what that looks like. That's why I say it's a season of faith. But I'm going to tell you something I can say very confidently, that when God calls us into a season of faith, you can guarantee that he is going to equip us for that season of faith, if we will be faithful. He knows that we're going in uncharted territory. You see, the good news is that though we're in uncharted territory as a church, you know that God knows no uncharted territory. He is sovereign. And this is true not just on a church scale, but it's true on an individual scale. For my call to ministry, it was true for me. Maybe it's parenthood. That God's calling you into a new season, and you're like, I don't know what we're going to do. Hey, newsflash, none of us did, and God sort of just provides. It may be a new job. It may be a relationship. It may be a conversation. How many conversations do you may have where God's prompting you, and you think, I don't think I'm going to have the words to say. I don't think I'm going to have the answers. Do you understand that's a faith enterprise where we say, you know what? God has not called you because you have all the answers. He's calling you because he's saying, you go in faith, and I will supply the needs that you have. If God calls you into a season of faith, you can rest assured that he will provide there. This is certainly happening in our passage. But lastly, as we talk about this, this forward theme that God is, things are getting greater, greater opposition, greater needs met. One thing that we can't miss, I think that is most important to our passage, is that there is greater reach that's happening. The gospel is reaching with longer arms. Look at verse 16. <clears throat> it says, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, don't miss that, from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. That word around is very important there, because what it's saying is that it's, 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 it's fulfilling the prediction of Acts 1-8. You'll go be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, right, to the end of the earth. What's happening is that this is already coming true, is that while the gospel started there in Jerusalem, it's starting to sort of leak outside of the area, and it's going to suddenly reach Meridian before too long, right? The thesis of this book is coming true. You see, the opposition is great. It's growing greater, but it is overcome by a great God showing himself to be even greater than the opposition. Many things can be said about the gospel message, but here it is clear that these signs and wonders being done were signs of healing. Don't miss that. They're signs of healing. They're signs because they point to something. 
And I'm going to assure you that the main healing that we are to admire in this text is not legs, is not eyes. What is the great healing? It's the healing that God provides over the problem of sin. You see, healing is most sought. Healing is most desired. It's most longed for when the sickness is most apparent. You guys ever had food poisoning? Is that not like the worst thing you've ever done in your entire life? I had like the worst food poisoning I've ever had several years ago and definitely should have gone to the emergency room. And uh, I was like, this is it. I'm just going to die right here in this bathroom. This is going to be where they're going to do the chalk line. You know what I mean? Um, I felt horrible. And uh, I was like out of, out of town, so I didn't have like my home around me to be able to, and it was just terrible. And uh, thankfully, Brooke was there because it wasn't man flu, okay? It was an actual terrible thing. And she was like, do you want to go to the emergency room? I was like, no, let's persevere. But I'll tell you guys, I was like literally praying, God, take this away. God, take this away. And when I'm the sickest, I find myself doing that. But I don't do that when I have a head cold. And there's something to that, is that when we find ourselves in the most dire of illnesses, don't we cry out? Don't we long for healing the most when we realize just how desperate the circumstances are? Guys, we come into the world with a sickness, and it's not a head cold. It's not even food poisoning. It is infinitely worse than any of those, that our sickness is the problem of greatest desperation, and that is that we come into this world with a sin problem separated as sinners from a holy God. That is the ultimate desperation of circumstances. But the good news of the gospel is that we have a healer. We have a healer who has seen us in our desperation, cry out to him, and he says, I will give you healing. And the healing that we receive is not new legs. It's not eyesight. It is the problem of sin that has been redemptively snatched away from us. You know what redeem means? It means to purchase. It was purchased. Not at a monetary value, but the infinite value of the son of Jesus' blood. The son Jesus' blood that was poured out for us. Jesus met your greatest need. And if he's calling you into a special season of faith, you can bet that he will equip you along the way to depend on him. He meets our needs, the power to meet our needs. The second thing is the power to break chains, the power to break chains. There's a really important word that starts out this next section. In the ESV uh, that I'm preaching from, the word is uh, but, B-U-T. It's a change of direction. It may say in your translation now, but I'm going to suggest to you that but is a very good translation there because it is the exact opposition that comes into play that reverses the point of view. Look at verses 17 and 18. But the high priest rose up. So all these good things that are happening, right? Not so fast, he says. But the high priest rose up and all who were with them, hit with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. You see, we've seen God work when things have gone well. But we're about to see God work when things are not going so well. The high priest steps in, and this this but, this change, is he stands in opposition of everything that is said right before this. It says that he's filled with jealousy, which I mentioned already, and we've mentioned in the weeks prior, is that they were bothered by the fact that the Jesus movement was siphoning 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 followers away from them. Their number was decreasing, and the Jesus movement was increasing. It says here, notice this in uh, verse 18, it says, they arrested the apostles. Does anybody translation say something different than that? Raise your hand if it says they put hands on them or something like that. Anybody? That's okay, you can be bold. 
That's the literal translation. In my translation, it says they arrested them. Literally, what it says is they put hands on them. And not like in the way in the 21st century, don't let me put hands on you. That means that like you're going to fight. That's not what it means. Is that they literally placed their hands on them. But the understanding is that they took them into their control and arrested them. By the way, it says they placed hands on them. That's contrasted. This is really neat to me. I love this stuff. In verse 12, the apostles were also placing hands on people. You have healing hands versus arresting hands. Healing hands versus halting forward the gospel and hands that are seeking to arrest the gospel. I'll let you guess which hands would prevail. Look at verse 19. It says, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out. We'll pause there for just a second. Notice the first word of verse 19 again. Same word as in verse 17, but, and then, but. It's the same word, and essentially we see that the high priest has other plans when things are going well, but then the greater rises to the occasion, and that is that God has other plans in the midst of this opposition. Guys, hear me say this. I'm going to say this a couple more times. This passage is nothing short of cosmic overrule. This passage is nothing short of cosmic overrule. Look at verses 19 through 21. I'm going to read these again. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Nothing short of cosmic overrule. The angel tells them to go right back and do what you were just doing. Isn't that kind of crazy? It's like when, when your football team does a running play up the middle and it gets stuffed at the line and they're like, run it again. You know, it's like, well, we just got arrested. You would think to say, well, I don't know if that's a good idea. But this is God's plan. Go right back to work and do what you were doing just a moment ago. And we're going to continue the narrative next week. But just for the sake of time, we're going to pause it there. It says they went back at daybreak. That means first thing in the morning. It's there to heighten the obedience. Go right back as soon as the gates open and you get back to teaching with boldness, by the way, which they had prayed for just before. You can't miss what the angel tells them. Go and stand in the temple. And what does he say? Speak to the people all the words of this life. In the ESV, they capitalize the L there. I think that's a good touch. Uh, your translation may not have the L capitalized. Um, one of the early words for the faith seems to be, according to this verse, the life. Isn't that cool? Who else said that? Jesus said that. I am the way, the truth and the life. By the way, we're going to read later in the book of Acts another name that was assigned to Christianity before it was called Christianity, and that is the way. You see these words that fall into place, that they listen to Jesus' teaching and say, we follow the way. We follow the life. The angel says, you go and teach them about the life. John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. There's something really cool, like an image that's happening here is that he sets them free, the angel, whether it be he or she, sets them free from the prison and sends them right back and says, Christ came to talk about life. Go do it. Guys, and I'll also say this, that Christ came to break the shackles of death. Christ came to break the shackles of death, and he sent us into this life to talk about this life. It's a neat thing, right? They could arrest God's messengers, but they could not arrest God's message. The enemy literally attempted to lock up the movement of God, and there were no chains that could hold it because there are no chains that can hold our God. Our gospel is one of broken chains, not a physical prison, but a spiritual one. The chains of sin and death are 
broken. Luke 4, 18, same author, says, Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Listen to these words. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, that means gospel, to the poor. Listen, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty, freedom, those who are oppressed. Guys, the essence of this life, this gospel, is that it is only offered to us because God has broken the chains of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57, man, if you don't know these verses, I would commit them to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. Oh, death, where is your victory? Amen? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, but thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Does death have any power? emptied of its power, shackles broken in the name of Jesus. Ephesians 2, 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Guys, listen, the story of the gospel is nothing short of cosmic overrule. God entering into our prison, by the way, taking our place in that prison, Jesus did, as he bore the wrath the death reserved for us so that we could be released from those chains, shackles broken, redeemed, I am redeemed to eternal life in the name of Jesus. That's the gospel. It's cosmic overrule. It's Jesus entering into our imprisonment and saying, I'll take the sentence. I'll take the death so that we can say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Guys, isn't that the story of our lives? God stepping into a hopeless life and injecting it with something totally foreign to the human experience. Hope. Well, how do we respond to such clear, life-giving good news? Well, let's take one out of their playbook. Verse 21. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. What's going to happen next? threats, opposition. And by the way, it gets good next. I'm excited to talk about that. But I want you to understand something, and this is very important. Listen, the angel did not free them to go and hide out in safety. He freed them for the mission. He freed them for the mission. Guys, God does not set us free to live a safe life. He frees us to go and live the saved life. God doesn't set us free to live a safe life. He sets us free to live the saved life. We're called to be witnesses. Witnesses tell the truth. Witnesses go and say, this is what happened to me. This is the events. This is how it happened. And I can do nothing but tell the truth. And my question to you this morning, friends and Christians, brothers and sisters, is are you willing to go forward with God if it means things may get difficult? Are you willing to go forward with God if it means that things may get difficult? It may cost you to do the right thing. That's why it says they didn't dare join them. Because they saw the cost. But guys, sometimes the things that are the most precious are the things that cost something. Laying down pride, 
and humbly saying, I want to be obedient. It may cost the end of a relationship. It may cost quitting a job. It may cost missing the party or being out of the friend group or treated differently or ostracized because you're one of those Jesus freaks. It may financially cost you to be obedient, to be a giver. The Bible does not promise that God will keep Jesus' followers safe. It promises that he will equip us for the work that he has assigned us to. You know, we sing songs about this, and I don't know if we really understand what we're singing sometimes. There's a song that a lot of us in this room like, Honey in the Rock. You know that song? It's a good song, right? That's a song about suffering, you know. It sounds like a warm coffee shop song. It is not, man. You know the times when God's people, honey in the rock, manna on the ground, water from a stone? You know when they needed those things? When they were suffering. When they had no food. And God intervened. And they trusted him. After they complained against him. Water from a stone because they had nothing to drink. And they complained. And then God provided. And then they learned, I need to trust him. Guys, that's a suffering song. You have all that I need. You are all that I need. Do you believe that? That's a song of suffering. It's a song of faith. That God, you equip within me what you call me to. Maybe that one's a little new. Remember the old hymn, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place? You could pick dozens and dozens and dozens of songs. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. You are all that I need is what that means. Do you believe that? I'll just say it again. That God does not promise to keep his people from hardship. He promises that he will equip us for the work that he has assigned us. And sometimes that work is accomplished through hardships. We must decide now what we value more. Our comfort, convenience, our safety, our trusting in God, and walking in his plan of growing us and reaching other people through us. And that will require things getting hard, counting the cost, and saying, I need no other argument, no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Because God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. You know, whether in the temple or in the prison cell, God saw his people. God was with his people. He ministered to his people. But I want you to hear me say something. We, we have these stories etched on these pages and many pages before these because they're powerful and they're wonderful and they're exciting and they're a blessing. But please hear me say this. God did not always free his people from prison. In fact, more often he didn't. But he always guaranteed his people a greater freedom. I'll say another one. God often healed many people. But God did not always heal his people from ailments. But he always guaranteed his people a greater healing. And today, there are many people in this room that are crying out, God, give me healing. God, give me freedom from this problem. And God's responding, you sing, you're all that I need. Do you believe that? You sing that it's enough that Jesus died. 
and he died for you. But do you believe that? Because God won't always bring freedom from your problems, but he promises a much greater freedom. And he won't always bring healing from your hardships, but he promises a far greater healing. Can we say that we'd rather have the lasting healing than the one in this life? That's hard to say. Can we say that? And today, I think there are many people in this room that are not really sure. And many people in this room that are really going through it right now that are just not so sure about that. And today, there are some people in this room that they started to feel hot when they watched this happen. Because they've never come to a point, and maybe you have never come to a point in your life where you can say, that transformation has happened in me, and I know it has. And that there's lots of doubts and questions and uncertainties. I can't guarantee a lot in your life, but I can guarantee you today that if you will allow him, if you will trust in him and place your faith and trust in Jesus, you will have freedom. You will have healing. And it may not come in the physical circumstances of this life, but there is one that far exceeds it. And today can be the day that you receive that healing, that you receive that freedom.